each of us are connected to food systems. So you and I have a vested interest in understanding its workings, challenges, and potential solutions. In my role at Google, one of my responsibilities is to ask, what are the impacts of our food choices? Not just on our individual health and well-being, but also on the food systems we are a part of, our producers, our suppliers, society, and the planet. I believe we all have a responsibility to ask big questions like this one. The answers can open a world of possibility. I invite you to join me in meeting the leaders who have dared to step up to answer these bigger questions to create a better food future for us all. This is Food Lab Talk. Thanks for joining me for another Food Lab Talk. I am Michael Bakker. Imagine an adaptable and resilient food system, providing universal access to food that is diverse, delicious, and that sustains the body, soul, and planet. Sound agriculture is helping make that system a reality. Improving how we farm and what we eat through new nature-based solutions for tastier, healthier, and more sustainable food. You see, farmers are looking for products that boost yield and save money in ways that protect the environment. Consumers, like you and me, increasingly want food with better taste, nutrition, and sustainability profiles. Sound's platform sits at the intersection of that, evolving traits much faster than traditional plant breeding without the use of genetic modification. Nature can and often does this on its own. You do see sweeter tomatoes, berries, etc. You do see longer shelf life, skin like this. But you have to, today, do that through random chance and crossbreeding that, again, takes 10 years or more in a lot of cases, versus why not find a, a natural way through their mechanisms to speed that up in a more targeted way. And most people that resonates with, if you're showing a consumer how some of this technology can be used to decrease cost, to um, have less damage on fertilizer or other traits or less food waste or help with their health, I think that, that changes the equation in the conversation drastically. Um, and people I see be a lot more open to that. As chief executive at Sound, Adam Lytle leads the organization in unlocking the natural power within plants to help agriculture adapt faster and become more resilient. Sound has partnerships with over a dozen companies to improve flavor, reduce spoilage, and increase yield in a variety of crops. Their summer swell tomato is hitting shelves in the New York City metro area this spring. On today's episode, you'll hear more about the groundbreaking technology that enables the summer swell tomato to have a longer shelf life without compromising flavor. How Adam addresses skeptics of novel technologies and why he believes sticking to your passion and putting one foot in front of the other are key to making a lasting impact on food waste. Here's my interview with Adam Lytle. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation today because, as you know, this series is really about reducing loss and waste in food systems. 
and talking with a former banker in biotech about food loss and waste. I think it's going to be interesting. <laughs> so in preparation for our calls today, I was looking actually at the company sound and the product. And probably many individuals listening to the podcast today are as unfamiliar with it as I was. So can you help me out a little bit more on what is sound agriculture all about? Sure. So Sound is really trying to create a new type of ag company that focuses on nature-based solutions to growing food, as opposed to using bulk fertilizers, chemistry, GMOs, more of a tech approach to, in some cases, overwhelm nature and do things that we've done in the 20th century to produce a lot of calories at scale cheaply, which we did very well at, to a more 21st century approach where you can work with existing systems in nature to do more with less. And what that really means is for us, a couple different business lines. One is in the business of how we farm and the other one is what we grow. So on the how we farm side, we have uh, a number of inputs. The flagship product is called Source, which is a very small volume biochemistry product that mimics a signal that naturally occurs in plants with their soil microbiome. And so the plant today is working with billions of microbes in the soil and at the root zone, signaling to those microbes that it wants certain chemicals, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, other things like that in exchange for sugars. And there's all these chemical signals happen. We found a way to mimic that and create that chemistry and increase the potency of it, which can increase yield and decrease the need for synthetic fertilizer by up to 30%, which is a massive, massive impact on global greenhouse gas emissions, as well as water quality and food quality and things like that. On the other side of the company, which I think we'll talk more about today, uh, relating more directly to food waste, is something called on-demand breeding. And so we discovered a way we can work within, again, the existing pathways in a plant, specifically at the seed stage, where as the seed germinates, we have targeted proteins that can go in and change gene expression. And so what that means is we're not changing the DNA, but we are enhancing or blocking how much of that gene expression is going to a certain outcome. This happens naturally in plants. Uh, this area is called epigenetics and, and actually humans too, where it's not just your genes, but it's how those cellular mechanisms interpret those genes to determine your hair color, if we're talking about humans or plant architecture, sugar content, disease resistance, all of these different traits, as they're called, um, that we can impact in months instead of the typical seven years plus to breed new new crop traits. So it's pretty dramatic and exciting in terms of the pace and ability which we can impact um, type of crops that we're growing broadly. I'm not a scientist. I am just in awe of what you're describing over here. And looking at your website earlier today with the product source, I loved the description, caffeine for microbes. <laughs> that really made me understand it a little bit more but can you help me to make the link between on-demand breeding and the theme of the podcast series, reducing loss and waste in food systems? So how would you describe to a layperson clear link is between the two? Sure. And let me use another analogy because they're fun and they can often hit home more so. And I'm not a scientist either, but I just enjoy working with technical folks. Um, right now with CRISPR and gene editing, which has been happening for the last decade and is still getting steam, 
you can go in and turn on and off genes. And that is tantamount to turning a light on and off in a room. With this new space of epigenetics, it's a little bit like a dimmer switch. And so we can change the dimmer switch on gene expression, which gets to similar outcomes. And that's a lot more nuanced and, and natural in how you're working with the plant. So what we can do is uh, we have a new tomato that we're launching that is longer shelf life. And as a result, better peak flavor that we are launching in grocery stores, starting with the New York area, but ideally expanding after that. And we tune down an enzyme that breaks down the plant skin. As a result, the skin is more robust. The plant architecture is more robust. And you can have an amazing tasting heirloom tomato that's just like you would get at a farmer's market, but it'll last a week or more on your shelf at home. Whereas if you buy that today, typically it turns to mush after a couple of days. You don't see those sort of tomatoes in grocery stores as a result. What you see are tomato on the vine, beefsteak tomatoes, other things. At most grocery stores, they won't taste very good because they have to be gassed with ethylene in order to get more ripe prematurely. And they're really bred for the supply chain and cost, but not flavor and not nutrition. And so we believe with this technology, we can address that for consumers, as well as uh, things like food waste and sustainability without compromising on cost and supply chain. That's what we're really excited to do. And this tomato, this we call the summer swell tomato, longer peak flavor, less food waste is just the beginning. I get it. Digging a little deeper. So if I hear you correctly, you're able to, I'm not so sure if you use the right terms, but basically there is a product that has different attributes and it might be longer shelf life or a skin that bruises less. And as a result of that, a product will most likely stay longer in the chain before it gets wasted. And you are ultimately an input provider. How will a farmer ultimately benefit from that? Because do you think there's going to be a higher price to be paid to the farmer and ultimately a consumer will pay more price for that as well? Or ultimately are the savings in, it might be slightly more expensive, but as you can actually sell more, it balances out. How do you see that? Well, one piece just to address on, you understood and articulated very well, but it's not just about the grocer uh, lasting longer. So they don't have to throw out as many tomatoes in this case. It's also about the consumer because we throw out a large portion, up to half of the produce we're buying at home, depending on what it is. And Heirloom tomatoes or, or great tasting fresh tomatoes would be in that category. And so to me, what's exciting is there's opportunities for reduced food waste with the consumer at their house, as well as on the retailer, that dual benefit. In terms of the cost uh, and implications for growers and then all of us buying these things, it actually doesn't have to be a more expensive product. And so there, there's choices that we'll have to make as a startup with not that high of production. A cost where we don't have the same economies of scale that others in the business, Masternardi, et cetera, would have. So our cost basis is considerably higher. But it's not because of the technology. It's not because of this, um, this breeding work we're doing, because it can be so fast and be done in months instead of the typical seven plus years. So while we are looking at this as launch and, and see if there can be a slight premium, call it 20 to 30% versus other slicing tomatoes, it's really more about proving product market fit. And then as we scale, it can go mass market pretty quickly. And then we just improve the experience 
uh, the sustainability of these products without raising the price significantly. Or we also have the potential to go into more niche markets where you do have more differentiated produce that could be sold at a premium. You're probably aware of there's very high premium strawberries uh, that are coming out of certain areas that are sweeter and more beautiful and sort of this like Instagram food direction. We could go there, but we're more interested in the broader mass market play that gets more nutritious, more sustainable food to everybody at a competitive price point. What I hear you explain is actually that with on-demand breeding, you're able to introduce a variety of new or evolving attributes for a product. And that therefore you can create a product that is going to meet specific criteria, flavor, taste, durability, whatever that might be. So I've got a question to see whether you're willing to go down that path for a moment. What we eat and consume today has been bred throughout many, many years. And we don't necessarily articulate or inform a consumer of how we got to what we have as of today. When you have a solution like yours, and when we talk about on-demand breeding, people probably have a reaction and you get the question, is it natural? And you can draw the analogy to other technologies or evolutions over the past that have led to interesting consumer responses. How would you help a consumer to come along and to understand that what it is that you're providing actually, it's an accelerated natural way of looking at breeding versus potentially being considered by some, several, many, as not natural or with additional risk? Yeah, absolutely. It's a hot topic that we were evolving on. The short answer, and I, and I do this at, at dinner parties or when I'm interacting with folks, and that's a really fun part about the job because we get to riff on these and as well as the leadership team and learn as we go. So we're having these conversations live. The best one I've found is we can't do anything that nature couldn't do on its own. Meaning, this evolution happens anyway. All of us have epigenetic factors that are influencing how our genes are expressed. And that leads to variations in natural outcomes, as well as the genes themselves through mutations, right? And that's how this breeding has been done, whether people know it or not, for hundreds of years. So let's, let's start there. Unlike GMO, so most people don't know what GMO actually is. Gene modification is when you're taking genes from different species. So for example, a bacteria or an insect or something like that, and you're splicing it into the crop. And that is something that literally nature could not do on its own. And that's where I, I think very much it's in that bucket of unnatural, right? By definition. With what we're doing, nature can and often does this on its own. You do see sweeter tomatoes, berries, et cetera. You do see longer shelf life, skin like this, and other things that would happen. But you have to today do that through random chance and crossbreeding that again takes 10 years or more in a lot of cases versus why not find a, a natural way through their mechanisms to speed that up in a more targeted way. Now, the purists would say, I don't care. You're still using technology in the cell. And honestly, for them, I say, great, you shouldn't buy our product. I believe that as this world gets into more, more changes every day that are happening faster and faster across all these different elements, to be that sort of purist and reject all forms of innovation and technology, even if it is on the side of what nature can do, but accelerate that, means that we're essentially accepting things like climate change, obesity, other aspects that relate to the improvements we could do here, which is a horrible trade-off for people on the planet. And most people that resonates with 
I would also say there's a generational divide here where I'm 41. My age and below, and, and not to throw shade on those who are older, but like we care less about this, honestly, because it's a lot about the generation that was scared off by this in the 80s and the 90s with Monsanto and GMOs. That technology was used to make farmers' lives better. Most consumers do not understand how food is grown. And so all that technology didn't get to the benefit of the consumer. If you're showing a consumer how some of this technology can be used to decrease cost, to um, have less damage on fertilizer or other traits or less food waste or help with their health, I think that, that changes the equation in the conversation drastically. Um, and people I see be a lot more open to that. So, Adam, let's look in the crystal ball 10, 20 years from now. What do you think is the future of on-demand breeding as it relates to produce, vegetables, fruit, all the good stuff we're eating as of today? Will it be all? Will it be part? What are your thoughts on that? I believe that the produce aisle is going to be mostly branded. So starting there with the consumer experience, and, and I'll back into the, the answer on the technology, but that's the key starting point. Whether or not you have the belief and the, the technology and the route to market to make that happen. And today, when you ask a consumer, what is the brand of the apples you buy or bananas or berries or lettuce? And it, it's, it's very different, actually, than it was even five to 10 years ago, where people know more of them. But most only know maybe like one, two, two brands. Cuties, Driscoll's, uh, Chiquita, et cetera. And of course, now you have indoor ag, CEA players, controlled environment agriculture players trying to brand things on leafy greens and otherwise. And so I think this movement will continue as you get more differentiation and it's just better consumer experience from taste being king to nutrition to sustainable growth and where that was grown in those attributes, as well as convenience. That's the fourth one that we think about. Those are the kind of the four chunks. Now, then... What are the technologies that are going to support that and enable that? I do think on-demand breeding is going to be a big one because of the speed and the cost. We can have 10% of the cost versus what a lot of things are done today, these novel attributes. And so whether it's half, uh, a, 30, a third, two-thirds, I, I, I think it can and, and will likely be a big um, component of that. But I, I think you're also going to see that branded uh, differentiation come from different things like indoor ag, like traditional breeding and other things. So it'll be a mix. But I, I think this is going to be a big component. How big it is, uh, we're definitely trying to figure out. Yeah. Back to the theme of the podcast, which is about how might we contribute to reducing loss and waste in food systems. Do you feel that the core purpose of your organization was really to help with that? Or did it become over time a great additional benefit? And the reason why I asked the question, not that I judge in any form or shape, but the people that want to work for an organization like yours, are they singular purpose driven and they want to solve for X and that's what is driving them? Are they more scientists who love the idea of what you can do with the technology you've developed? Talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's it's actually a topic that um, we we introduce on every new employee. There's a there's a CEO onboarding session because I love the opportunity to meet everybody, and I don't always work with everybody day to day because we just hit about 150 people. So at this stage, it's important to have that connection. One of those things we cover is uh, our mission slide and the reasons for existing, and it's generally boiled down to a few things. It's the access to food itself and avoiding food deserts. 
Not to say that we're going to run out of food for the planet, but we are going to see dislocations due to environment, supply shocks, things like war in Ukraine. Those things will continue where people don't have access to healthy, nutritious food uh, grown in the right way. And products like ours and technologies like ours really help create a more agile and resilient food system to make sure we have not only calories, but the right kind of calories. Two is the environmental impact of 25% of greenhouse gas emissions coming from food and ag and 48% of water, surface water quality issues in the US are, are due to industrial agriculture. And then three is nutritious food and differentiated food that's going to help a consumer get a, a piece of produce, vegetable or fruit versus a bag of chips. And people join the company and they gravitate to sometimes all three of those, sometimes just two or one of those. And it's okay. Not everyone has to have the same logic. And there's even another one that comes up day to day, which is we work with a lot of growers and we want to help make growers' lives easier and make them more money because our solution is a lot cheaper and easier than buying fertilizer in bulk. The common thread is generally um, environment though, whether it's water, whether it's climate, whether it's food waste. And because we hit on those with both how we grow and what we eat, it really is a nice driver that brings everyone together. And you'd find if you're talking to our employees, that mission-driven approach is ubiquitous across the board. We even poll it. We have uh, some annual surveys and polls where we go very deep on this. And I think the mission strongly resonating with the company, if I remember correctly, was 97% uh, of the company last time we did that with the only other three being it resonates, maybe not strongly. <laughs> so pretty high. And just one follow-up question. So what I find so interesting is that everybody uses the stat, we lose 40% of what we produce. And we just assume that that number is correct. And let's assume for a moment it is. And then you have a solution like yours. And then you show up and say, if you use my solution, there will be a reduction of loss and waste in the overall system. And it sounds really logical. But then for a skeptic or a cynical person and say, well, do you have data to prove that? And what I find is really, really hard because you know it is there, but it's damn hard to prove. <laughs> yep. How would you then deal with the skeptic? I would admit that at this stage, we don't have the data yet. So first off, we are very much on the the product and the technology, which you have to start there, the core of what we're doing sets us up for less food waste because of everything we talked about earlier with products like the tomato and, and others we're working on are going to mean you're throwing out less produce in two points in the chain in both your grocery store and the home. And I think that's important because not everyone is working on both of those, first of all. As we go forward, we, we literally are launching our first product now to the consumer. So this had been not quite in stealth, but an earlier stage business of sound that was in part funded on the later stage business. And so as we go forward, we have a plan and we know what metrics that we're going to be measuring around that through things like conversations and data tracking and metrics with the grocers, as well as on the shelf with consumers where we will choose essentially components and test subjects who are able to work closer with us and see what they would have otherwise done. So I think we would start there. We get some empirical data. We want to be very data driven. And then we would build on that and honestly ask the skeptic what they would want in addition to that, because we don't quite know yet uh, as we're dipping our toe into this industry for the first time. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. So you've been around for a while and you've done different things. So if 
you are new to the industry and then you hear about the incredible numbers of food loss and waste. So on the one hand, there is this gigantic opportunity because we're throwing away so much. And at the same time, I think many of us have the realization is that, but how can I, or with a small organization, actually make an impact on this? So what advice would you have for a person who is just driven by making an impact, but is starting literally from scratch? There's so much, I would say, almost greenwashing that occurs with a lot of investment and money in this space that I, I almost think it's the opposite in terms of people will, sh will chase a lot of the shiny, newer ideas that changes everything all at once. And a lot of the investment money goes towards that. And that's the sexy. Those are the sexy things. Often what actually works and what is tangible and concrete and what sustains is not that, but it's the one foot in front of another with the companies doing the hard work of getting things out and still growing fast, but in, in a little more of a responsible, moderate way. And especially in this space, if you care about climate and you care about food waste, you care about water quality, there is no silver bullet. Absolutely not. There is no single thing that's going to save us all and, and drive this forward. It's going to be uh, dozens, if not hundreds of solutions. For example, nitrous oxide, which comes from the volatilization of too much nitrogen being used in agriculture, production agriculture, is responsible for 2 to 5% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So some people would say, oh, it's only 2 to 5%, right? Like that's not the eye-popping 40% that energy and, and cities and the industry is. So I don't want to be on that. However, that's where you can really make the difference. And oh, there's all these industries and, and there's going to continue to be where there are those opportunities that don't seem sexy right now. But then the cycles always come back. Like five, six years ago, or even a little before that, ag tech and food tech was nowhere near what it is today. But the people who are successful are not those who are getting in late and jumping on the hype cycle. It's those who were willing and interested in working in something that was a core passion to be there, having already built something and having a head start when it becomes quote unquote sexy. So... Focus on the team, focus on that broader fundamentals of the market opportunity of the science and technology, the opportunity really works, as opposed to the sizzle and the hot thing in the moment. Yeah. And then you are alluding that you're going to have your products available to the consumer in the near future. So two questions from where in what marketplace will that be? The other one is, what are your thoughts on whether you believe you should disclose that the product was grown with the on-demand breeding technique or not? So our first product is this summer swell tomato, and that will be in shelves in the New York metro area starting in early April. On the other side, in terms of disclosure, we will absolutely have the information on our website and accessible through things like QR codes and others that we're exploring the best way to do this. But to date, we're probably not going to go say epigenetics or on-demand breeding on the carton just because no one really knows what that means. So it's a matter of figuring out the positioning, the language, everything else, while making sure that we're fully transparent. It's just a question of how forward we are with it. Yeah. What I think is so interesting is that we don't necessarily disclose existing practices. But then when you introduce something new, there is this urge to disclose that. And it's not a fair playing field, I believe. That's a personal perspective. I, I totally agree. We did a taste test, a, a consumer taste test in Chicago on this almost a year ago. And 
that, that's one of the things we wanted to test. And we had dozens of people come in and it was really great in terms of that learning. But the minute we got into it, they're like, what do you mean that there's breeding and you're crossing crops to get different traits? And no, we're, I mean, this has happened since Mendel and the peas back in 1600s. Uh, but yeah, exactly. You have to get into all that and you've got what, five seconds in a grocery store to look at a label and figure this. So I think it's got to be more of um, a, a broader conversation through different channels. And then we look forward to, like you said earlier, being part of that. But, but what you actually put on the, the package, and these are going to be three tomatoes in a single package. I don't think anyone is going to be front and center with that because it's too complex. Yep. I totally agree. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. I love what you're working on. And very happy how clear actually you were in explaining i think some technology complex stuff thanks for your time today yeah likewise you uh you explained it quite well yourself at the beginning so thanks for the help there and i uh, love the conversation michael look forward to chatting again at some point if you would like to learn more about sound agriculture and their approach visit the links in our show notes thank you for joining us for this episode if you liked what you heard like and subscribe to our podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And as we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and inspiring actions towards a better food system for us all. See you next time. <music>